Welcome to another session with the Market Dominance Guys, a program exploring all the high-stakes speed bumps and off-ramps of driving to the top of your market with our host, Chris Beal from Connect and Sell and Corey Frank from Branch 49. A company's leadership, the lead singers pick up the pieces and fill in the holes in a performance. Their drummers keep the rhythm of the deal moving forward so everyone can stay in time. But what about the sales professional making the calls, the lyricist? The correct tone of a single syllable can make or break a conversation before it starts. Corey and Chris continue their conversation with Paula S. White of Side B Consulting. They compare the ways different cultures start a cold call. We all have more in common in our different cultures than you might think when we start a call if we admit that we are an interruption and that we have never met. Paula takes us through the skill of being an unexpected listener and where that is valuable in every business encounter. The good news is, it can be learned, like a memorable piece of music or your favorite song you can't get out of your head. Join these sales musicians in the episode, Join the Band, How Sales Professionals Are Like Lyricists. So what are these challenges that you see in companies? Because I would bet that there are folks maybe at the C-level who want to be more in touch with Side B to communicate, to retain talent, to inspire more creativity. And you probably have folks who say, hey, listen, I didn't sign on for this. I thought you hired me for my resume. I thought you hired me for my experience. How do you kind of help workshop that out so they they do sing the same song? So interestingly enough, it again, all comes down to culture. And you're going to see resumes changing very, very shortly where some of those things, those side B traits are starting to show up on resumes. They're looking for cultures of accountability. They're looking for cultures that are going to give back. They're looking for cultures who believe in their people, right? So how do you take what you have now and ensure that everyone is singing on the same page? I think it's just like getting in the studio. We have to get all ideas out on the paper or the whiteboard and start coming together as a band and making sure each instrument is represented for their own strengths. How is that facilitated? Do you expect that the leaders will drive that facilitation? I know certainly... Um, you know, that's what your practice is all about. But when the conductor leaves the building, yeah, such as you and your team, how am I empowered or instilled with this sheet music to make sure that, hey, drummer plays this, bass player plays this, etc.? You know, that's a great question, because after most workshops, people do tend to forget right? Facilitating something really takes time. And there is a monthly plan that I do connect with the CEO or the leader that put the workshop together to ensure these things are still happening within the organization. But the most important part is really taking the survey for each person to understand what their intentionality and what they are on the inside is brought out. And if that is known by everybody, 
then we can hold each other accountable to being open-minded, to being creative, to being experimental, to being laser logical. If we have a person who is laser logical, let's use that and let's create it together so that everyone knows what their skill sets are. Yes, it sounds great in a workshop, and it can facilitate afterwards. And I tend to take the next six months and we take the next six months to ensure that that continues to go through the organization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, that's uh, great. I think I keep coming back to this element of having the courage to do it. Yeah. Because, you know, we read, right, Chris, we read a lot of books. We've listened to a lot of podcasts, we adhere to the philosophies of a lot of speakers where it's about technique and not necessarily the connection. And in what certainly what Helen talks about, and certainly Paula, what, what I hear from, I understand from what your practice does is really we try to have that catalyst, that spark of that connection. And that's what certain people are better at it than others. How do I develop that connection, that intentionality that you you spoke about earlier? Well, first, you've got to really understand what that connection is within you. And we talked about that a little bit. It may not be vulnerability, right? Your connection may be um, that you are helpful or that you like to experiment with ideas. So understanding yourself first gets to the point of seeing yourself what hasn't been seen before in this survey, right? Mm -hmm. And we take those three essential traits and three desirable traits, and then we kind of pie fit them. What resonates with you? How are we to get you to be more open-minded? Because that is what is in you. So how do we get that to connect with your people? And we have different questionnaires and different things that people can do to become more open-minded, right? There's different lessons in all of that. And I think what you're asking mostly is one of the part of the workshops that I absolutely love is understanding how to become an unexpected listener. Unexpected listener. Yeah. There are levels of listening. So the first phase of listening is listening, right? You go in ready to defend your ideas and all you're listening for is an opening. Next level is active listening, right? You're going to actively listen to somebody, show them that you care, but you still have that little ticker tape going down at the bottom of the screen that is in your back of your mind, but you're listening to them because they're up on top of the screen. Mm -hmm. And then the unexpected listener actually reacts on what their people are saying. Takes the time to do, takes Mm -hmm. the time to react and do what is being asked of or listening to what they need. I always have this question about anything where there's change. So when you're working with a leader, are you working with individual leaders or are you working with the whole team? So interestingly enough, I do both. I look work with individual leaders, but for the most part, my workshops are with high potential emerging leaders throughout organizations. Hmm. So within an organization, they'll bring together the high potential. Yeah. 
completes their idea of who's who's high potential. And that's a whole nother topic. (laughs) (laughs) I I always say there's a if you want to find out what's going on, look at the filter first before you look at the processing. Right. (laughs) So you have these folks together, you're working with them, you're listening to them, hopefully in an unexpected way, but you're finding out that you know you've brought whatever you brought to the party that day also, right? You're just another human being. There's got to be in a, a pattern to what happens in because there's always patterns to what happens. And somewhere in a pattern, I always look for that thing that I call the, the, the first unit of change. Mm-hmm. That is what actually is something that changes, that's concrete, that you can say, okay, that actually changed. I could validate it. I could test it. I could be concerned that it's going to change back. That's one of the ways that I can tell that the unit of change is a real unit of change is when it mm-hmm. bothers me a little after it happens that I'm concerned it'll flip back, whether it's in myself or somebody else. What is it that you're looking for, listening for, probably listening more than looking in a group? Say you've got you know seven emerging leaders, they're together, you're at the end of the first whatever it is, hour, two hours, or sometime when you're hoping that there will be a change of a kind, what is that unit of change? What's the thing you're looking for, listening for, that you would be worried or concerned later? It's like, I hope that doesn't flip back over to side A. So I'm always listening for diversity of thought. Uh, Do I have seven drummers in there? Or do I have a full, complete band? Do I have two vocalists that are dominating the whole session? Mm-hmm. And I really listen for what does their band or what does their group consist of? What is their talent? And then how can we cohesively work together to bring out everybody's talent to add loyalty and creativity and innovation, right? Because that's really the meat of emerging leaders are, that's where you're going to get your creativity, your innovation, your next level thinking for the company to move forward in five to 10 years, right? The people who are in the seats now are already thinking five to 10 years out. So now we need the next group to start thinking five to 10 years beyond that. Which is interesting given the way the world works now, right? Because five to 10 years far exceeds most people's anticipated employment with any given company. I mean, exactly. We, you know, we're running a funny operation here at Connect and so where the average tenure, the company's 15 years old and the average tenure is 17 years. So we flip. <laughs> I don't know how we did that. <laughs> But think about everything. Think about if you could actually, you know, because I've been with four companies throughout my entire 30 years, my career. And if you could retain that type of loyalty, that type of belief, that type of innovation for the long haul, what that would do for a company, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. The Beatles and the Rolling Stones and, you know, people, the bands that weren't one hit wonders, they have a legacy and we, we need to leave a legacy 
for the people that we serve. And so as we continue to grow that, the only way that you're gonna do that is by hoping more people stay loyal and, and not leave the company and have that type of culture. Mm. We'll be back in a moment after a quick break. Selling a big idea to a skeptical customer, investor, or partner is one of the hardest jobs in business. So when it's time to really go big, you need to use an uncommon methodology to gain attention, frame your thoughts, and employ a successful sequencing that is fresh enough to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. From crafting just the right cold call screenplays to curating and mapping the ideal call list for your entire TAM, Branch 49's modern and innovative sales toolbox offers a guiding hand to ambitious organizations in their quest to reach market dominance. Learn more at branch49.com. And we're back with Corey and Chris. Interesting. I, I wonder if, Paula, in your practice, to that point, if you have, um, I'm sure you've seen CEOs that were more the drummers or maybe the the CFO was more of the lead singer, uh, which is counterintuitive to, I think, how most people think, right, Chris, when you have those 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 roles. Um, and does that, what, what do you, what have you learned from those type of dynamics that it doesn't necessarily match up with the archetype of the org chart and they're not right out of central casting as you had thought. Marketing isn't the drummer, um, rather it's right. the financial person. Maybe it's not a good thing to have the drummer be the CFO, but uh, uh, I don't know, maybe it is. Actually, the way that I did this, and I worked with a neuroscientist, a psychologist, a musician, and myself, the four of us worked together. So we took the position of the drummer, like because we've been talking about the drummer, and we asked ourselves, what is the primary role of the drummer? The primary role of the drummer in a band is to keep the beat, to keep everything moving forward, to keep the song moving forward. So what would be the side A? Side A is usually the visionary, the forward thinker, right? The person that is always ready to move and keep moving. Mm -hmm. So what their side B would be is curiosity because they need to understand as a visionary what's happening in the market, what's happening with their people, what's happening with their customers. They're always curious to move forward and innovate. So we did this really so methodically that I think it would be interesting to see if, you know, it's not based on title necessarily, but what their skill set is. So like the lead guitarist, mm -hmm. what, when you think of a lead guitarist, what do you think of? What is their primary role? Uh, getting the groupies in the drugs. Yeah. <laughs> oh, are you talking during, you're talking when they're on stage, not after. I thought we were talking about, after. okay. Uh, you're pretty close though. <laughs> probably they do the have, guitar riffs, right? Yeah, the, the riffs that have the unique sound that is the band, right? You think about the, you know, um, the edge, right? The U2 has a unique sound. Led Zeppelin had a unique sound because of the lead drummer, right? Exactly. Oh, sorry, the lead, the lead, lead guitarist. Yeah. So you've got that lead guitarist and they are so passionate about it. Mm -hmm. So passion is 
the side B trait. Yeah, you can't be a tourist in a band and be the lead guitarist, right? It's not, you don't just show up. I mean, you you are committed. You are 100% committed. Oh, and you take initiative and you're enthusiastic and you're even authoritative, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're most likely to be pissed off if somebody else blows it. Exactly. Lead guitarist that's the most pissed off. Yeah. 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 And, you know, for the optimist if, or the um, vocalist, you know, think about the vocalist for a moment. What is their primary role? Hmm. What is the primary role of a vocalist? Um, I suppose to, I mean, if we've all been parts of bands or watching uh, bands at bars where the musicians are incredible, but the lead singer is horrible. Um, and also where the where the lead singer is incredible, and maybe the band um, isn't up to tune. So I would say it's to it's really the face of the band. It's the the identity of the band. Everybody knows Bono up front or Axl Rose up front, right? Or Mick Jagger up front. I think the, you know, so I would think yeah. it's it's really more the branding. Um, but you know, I don't know. What do you think, Chris? Uh, I, as a singer myself, you know, and I this is something I actually even think you know I react to when I'm here at home. I've got my piano right over there and. I play and, and sing most evenings. And I think as the vocalist, I feel as the vocalist, what I'm doing is I'm telling the story. Mm-hmm. I'm helping the audience's emotions move with the whole song because the song includes the lyrics. It includes the tone. I, As the vocalist, I have a bigger range than any of the other instruments in terms of subtlety. I can do more things with my instrument than they can do with theirs. Yep, that is why their side B is advanced business acumen, because they do the whole thing. When they're on tour, they're providing direction, they're providing clarity, they're getting people set up, they know when the song ends, they're self-motivated, they analyze the pitfalls in the audience. Mm. I mean, I've been in a concert recently where the vocalist literally stopped the concert because he saw someone pass out in the mosh pit and get help and get them. So it's that type of brain. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. It's a funny thing. I mean, it's a very, it's also a big power position. I mean, like, you know, the drummer can drive the thing like, uh, like an engine, but somebody is going to decide when they're going to slam on the brakes, when they're going to make a hard turn. And there's a lot of power in that. And that always comes from the vocalist. The vocalist also ends up catching the and, and basically gluing things together when it didn't quite work. Like one of the problems with pure instrumental music is when it doesn't work, when it's a little off, and this is especially true when you're listening to jazz, jazz trios, when it's a little bit off, it's really bad. It falls. Yeah falls apart and and there's almost no way to catch it it's like who's going to catch it what are they going to do and what you do is you simplify down to something that continues to work that is you you actually lower the quality so to speak in jazz the quality comes not just from the execution but also from the imagination you reduce the imagination lower the temperature and let the music come back together but if you add a, a vocalist to that trio when it starts to fall apart they can actually pull it together with their voice 
Mm-hmm. And then everybody can get back together with the vocalist without having to abandon their imagination or, or tone it down. I mean, I really like these. This this is some interesting, interesting stuff. So I got to know, Paula. So uh, everybody feels differently about music as a consumer of it, but more similarly to each other, other than the fact they might like some genres more than others. I didn't know that I loved rap until I went to a play yesterday. I think it was Baby Hore yesterday called, uh, it was uh, the Christmas Carol done as uh, the Q Brothers Christmas Carol. Okay. And I realized, well, you know, that's what I really like about that music, even though I don't like the music. Now I really like it because it was funny and it told a great story and so forth. As consumers of music, we're all similar in that we all know how to consume the music that we like, right? Right. As producers of music, whether it's just your voice when you're speaking or whether it's actually making music by your, you know, by yourself or with others, I think we diverge a lot. I think that there's a a lot of issues around performance anxiety when it comes mm-hmm. to music, especially. Mm-hmm. We were raised, you know, giving piano recitals like I was, you know, and at the mm-hmm. age of four, there were, you know, it's like, how scary is that? It's not that scary because you just don't know anything, right? But you know, for some people, it's okay to perform musically. For some people, it's not. And yet when you're bringing out your side B, in a sense, you have to be okay. You have to learn to be okay performing, so to speak, from this other side of yourself. How do you help people do that? Because that's a wide divergence of capabilities that are built in and then hammered in through childhood. Right. It's just hammered in, right? It's a kind of a, like some people are way over there and they'll say I could never sing or I could never play. I could never do whatever. And some people will walk into a room, you know, having a tune and they'll like worry to break out into Broadway show music, you know, on a regular basis. Don Giovanni. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it, it really is getting people to see really. So, I am not a vocalist. I am a lyricist. I've written six songs for my book and uh, produced those with great musicians. But it's really seeing the unseen. And once somebody sees that they can be what they are truly within themselves, bringing their whole self to work, it's easier because that's what they're used to. For example, I was a competitive swimmer. I naturally leaned into music because I didn't hear anything or rhythm really, keeping my strokes in rhythm, keeping my beat going, breathing at the right time. I would make up songs in my own head. So when we're doing that, we those songs in your own head are just these voices of chatter. We're just trying to change that language to your side B. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that you use the rhythm. Of, was this going on in your head, the songs? It are, was absolutely yeah. going on in my head. I actually, in seventh grade, I'm going to give you a little tip here. Mm-hmm. Seventh grade, I wrote a whole play, Broadway play, for Billy Joel's album, The Stranger. 
What I did with it, I don't know. Hmm. But I wrote it about the Italian restaurant, the red wine, the white wine, the, you know, Brenda and Eddie. And it, I had the whole scene mapped out in my head. <laughs> I know, because I, they, I love music. Uh, by the way, I, I, I play from uh, that play, which somebody stole from you and put on Broadway. I was just playing from it the other night. <laughs> yeah. Those very songs. I didn't know you wrote that stuff. That's fabulous. Oh, no, no. I I wrote it in my own. Oh. I, I wrote it. I never gave it to anybody, but I wrote one when I was in seventh grade. I think early, you early probably, 90s, Joel. I think, but by the way, the, the power of, of uh, rhythm, I think, is really quite astonishing yeah. when it comes to yeah. stabilizing performance. So as some unfortunate to, you know, among our eight listeners know, I... I do barefoot endurance running for fun. And some people think that's oxymoronic. How could that be fun? <laughs> it's actually kind of a gentle, relaxing activity for at least the first few hours. And I recall once, because uh, I always have a song in my head, and it's always challenging to find a song that will help you, that that really will go along, you know, and help you. And I, I did a a 50k once in the almond and quicksilver mountains behind my house two weeks after running the the uh big sur marathon so this was not a good idea right yeah and these mountains are like really up and down and up and down and i did it on a whim and i ate the wrong thing beforehand and so i had these sort of stomach cramps for the first two two and a half hours and this thing took nine hours to run and what i found helped me for especially about the last five hours oddly enough was the odd rhythm of take five. And the reason was it kept my mind occupied because at the end of every measure, you were on the other foot. Really? That sounds ridiculously stupid, right? But no. it never got boring because when you, you're doing a run like that, you know, you, it's hard to keep your focus, right? Some things are going on in your body and your mind. But there was just something about going, I wonder which foot it's going to be because I'd forget, right? And, uh, well, what is that? Let's see, Brubeck, uh, I mean, he was, it wasn't uh, four, four, it was all kinds, I don't know what the time is, but. Uh, well, it's got five beats, it's five, four. So it's five, it's, four, quarter, yeah. it's quarter notes, but there's five of them in a measure. And yeah. it's, so it's got this extra beat and that extra beat I kept falling into. That's what I felt like is I can always fall into that fifth beat and then the next measure starts. I did that for the last five hours or so and. And then I finished the run and had a nice piece of peach pie and went home. But, <laughs> you know, I'll never forget that, the power of the music. And I don't listen to music when I run. I don't let it come in through my ears. It's always inside of me. But um, I'm a big believer in that. I actually think that music runs inside of us in a way to maintain our sanity. Wow. Wow. I would agree with you because music also is the only form that allows us to use both sides of our brain simultaneously. Yeah. Hmm. And we remember it differently. I mean, what, otherwise, why would there be named that tune? We talk on, on the cold calling technique world of market dominance, guys, which is all about you know, paving the market with trust by effectively by singing to somebody in seven seconds, right? You have seven seconds to get your voice to do something magical inside of that person. Hmm. And when you're thinking about like, well, what's, you know, what's really going on there, right? Mm -hmm. If somebody were to say, well, what's really happening there, what's happening is the words, we, 
we have a thing. We had a whole episode on this. So the words are like a surfboard and the voice is like the surfer, the artist. And somebody has to shape the words. We probably shouldn't be shaping our own words when we're out in the world of repetitive performance, because (laughs) the, the words, unless there's a whole bunch of them, we're probably not going to get it quite right, but we can incorporate the words as poetry and then sing them. And it's like, name that tune. Like, why could name that tune ever be a show? Think about it. It's crazy, right? Oh, right now. That tune in one or two seconds. And yet, if you walk around in the world and you hear the beginning of a song, you know it. You make a mistake. You might think it's one of three, but you'll you'll not think it's like one of a hundred. It's very, very quick, right? We can't remember our children's name. I well, I have a problem remembering names after 327 in the afternoon. I have a real issue with that, right? But the ability to remember that this is that song, even if you can't name it. You can continue it. Sure. That is deep, deep memory stuff. And when you think about relationships we have with people, what we're essentially doing is we're co-building memories with them. Right. And it's those memories that are the glue of the relationship. It's like when we were remembering before the show here, being on, you know, at this conference and then going on this little podcast that was happening we were actually reinforcing our relationship by remembering something together. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that is a, the essence of how we build businesses is we create what we call culture is actually a matrix of shared memories that are interpreted in a common framework. Mm. That's deep. You know, it's funny, Chris, I just had a, um, a client of ours came and pay us a visit and um, uh, she has a Japanese heritage, and she was. We were talking about um, the phone here, and uh, the phone that I was keeping in the, the back. And you know, now when we pick up the phone, we always say hello. And we were talking about this very thing about the surfboard and tonality, and you know, the musicality that you have to have the the right. You know, it's like if a lyricist, as you know, Paula, sometimes you're just looking for the right word to hit the right beat. If it's too short, we all know those songs that it could use another word or syllable here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in Italy, when you pick up the phone, you say Peranto, right? And she's saying, you know, in Japan, because I was talking about cold calling in different cultures, and the musicality of what we try to do here in the U.S. and would it translate well to Italian, would it translate to, to Japanese? And she said a beautiful thing. She said the Japanese, when, when, when you answer the phone from a business to business, not mushi mushi, when it's more informal, but that um, a traditional first encounter, and the word actually means, the phrase actually means greetings with a first encounter, it's uh, hajime mashite. Hajime Mashti, which means nice to meet you, first encounter. It's almost like, I, now I would never do it. So the first time we meet Paula, I'd say Hajime Mashti, right? Corey mm-hmm. Frank, right? Nice to meet you, first encounter, Corey Frank. And it was just something, Chris, that was I thought was just very beautiful about our profession that the person on the other end of the line, instead of saying, listen, this is a cold call, you can hang up if you want, Chris Voss stuff, right? Or it's really a variance of the 27 seconds. I know I'm an interruption. Yes. It labels oh. you as the monster, you as the as the invisible stranger when you say that Hajima Mashti, like this is the first time we've spoken. And it just had a view. She she was speaking in Japanese, just had a, such a musicality of it that 
I thought was such a beautiful tradition to connote, I'm the stranger, you're being vulnerable here right now by picking up the phone. I want you to know that we've never met before. Wow. I love that. That's wow. Yeah. And uh, talk about that vulnerability that you, you have to have in, in business, right? We talk about it, Paula, here as we wrap up about the vulnerability you have to have to explore your side B. Right. right. Chris and I have talked for years now about the vulnerability that you have to show, the courage you have to show because of this highly athletic act of of uh, of, of of cool calling here that we uh, that we do here. So mm-hmm. uh, but it, I tell you what, Paul, I you know, love love to learn a little bit more. I think there is so much to be learned from from these things about ourselves and and the in the synergies and the the opportunities to talk with you and Helen together. Chris, that would make a wonderful episode to have the love your team and the side B consulting here experts in action. So, so Paula, we would go to paulaswhite.com if we want to learn a little bit more and side B consulting is, uh, are you, are you on the Twitterverse everywhere else? And you can connect me on LinkedIn at Paula S white, Instagram side B and YouTube and side YouTube. B. What's your legacy? What's How about your- TikTok? I am not on TikTok. I still believe that there's more to there's more to say than 15 seconds. Is that what TikTok is? 15 seconds? I was unaware. Thank okay. you for that education. I don't think that would work for us then, Chris. 27 seconds is all is all we need. That's gotta have 27. 27 seconds. Well, Paul, it's been a pleasure. We look forward to hearing from you again on future episodes of the Market Dominance Guys. And for Chris Beal, the Sage of Sales, the Profit of Profit, the Hawking of Hawking, this is Corey Frank. Until next time. Thank Thanks. you so much. Connect and Sell, welcome to the end of dialing as you know it. Give your fingers a rest with Connect and Sell's patented technology. You'll load your best sales folks up with eight to 10 times more live qualified conversations every day. And when we say qualified, we're talking about really qualified, like knowing how many tears they shed while watching the end of Toy Story, kind of qualified. Learn more at connectandsell.com. Never miss an episode. Go to any of your favorite podcast venues and search for Market Dominance Guys or go to marketdominanceguys.com and subscribe. Subscribe.